Coming up on the AXA Legislative Lunch Break, Edgar and I have all of your latest news and information from the state capitol and CDE. Plus, we're talking about uh, masking and vaccine mandates and getting clarity from Governor Newsom's office. The AXA Legislative Lunch Break starts now. On a Wednesday, we welcome you to the AXA Legislative Lunch Break, along with Edgar Zazwata, AXA Senior Director of Policy and Governmental Relations. I'm Naj Alakon, AXA Senior Director of Marketing and Communications. Welcome. We are so happy to have you here on a Wednesday. Go ahead and jump onto our chat and say hello. Let us know where you're watching from today. Edgar, how are you on a Wednesday? I'm good. Good, Naj. I'm, I'm excited to, to be here. You know, after I think we went one week without maybe talking directly about well, we kind of did. We talked about COVID in a different sense, but, you know, we're back to what we've been talking a lot yeah. about over the last 20 months. But, but I'm excited for the show. We got, we got some great guests on today. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to hit on a very important topic. I, I, I do have to just make acknowledgement of this. I just flipped over to our comment section, Edgar. The number of people who had commented before I had already jumped on there. Um, <clears throat> incredible. So, so happy to have you guys. Sheldon, Mark Campbell is with us. Uh, Charlie and Gary Reller with us, Deanna, um, Heather Armelino is with us today. Uh, so good to have you guys on the show. Thought we would give you just a, a, a moment of levity here um, because we like to always keep you up to date on the things that happen behind the scenes here. And Edgar and I had a very interesting experience last week. Now, if you're a loyal viewer, you know we come on at one o'clock and we end anywhere between 1.30 and 1.40. Um, everybody knows it. The governor's office knows it. Lawmakers know it. Obviously, all of you know it. Um, we had somebody that has been on this show many times uh, who clearly wasn't watching last week's show, Edgar, because what happened? <laughs> well, well, a member that might name, re remain nameless or yeah. not, Wes Smith, yeah. uh, one of our rookie members there, uh, was, was trying to call me. <laughs> in the middle of, I think, us answering some questions, some viewer yeah. questions. So, you know, maybe short-term short, short -term memory there. He He's <laughs> handsful. He's back in the field. Yeah, He's running a district. He might have forgotten. He needed an answer. He was trying to call during the legislative lunch break, which, uh, you know, he claimed he was watching every week. So I don't know. We're right. going to take issue with that a little right. bit. Right. That is, uh, now I really question him saying that he watches every week when he calls you while you're in the midst of actually asking and answering a question. Hey, before we get to our guest, Edgar, I, I do want to um, bring up this story. This came from uh, our good friend, John Fensterwald over at EdSource, um, reporting on the Legislative Analyst's Office prediction that K through 12 schools and community colleges can expect $20 billion for new spending in 2022-2023, a windfall um, that follows a record post-pandemic year of funding. Uh, the amount uh, through Prop 98, the state formula um, would be projected at $102.7 billion. I, I want to preface this, Edgar, and maybe you can give a little context to it. This is the prediction from the legislative analyst's office, but it is always a little bit different than what the numbers come from the proposal that we see from the governor in January. Yeah, it's an early marker. And by all means, this is not gospel. This is not, this doesn't have any policy implications, but it's one of the early signs 
that us that follow kind of the state budget and kind of what, what are the themes are going to be that we're, 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 we're really focused on. So the nonpartisan uh, legislative analyst gives their prediction about where revenues are going to be in, you know, what, what the landscape is going to be as we approach January and the governor officially presents his January budget. As you mentioned, it's, it's good news. It's good news from, from the perspective of they're anticipating that there is going to be more revenues that prop 98 will increase quite a bit. I mean, I think it's good to have a little bit of reflection of where we were at in the spring of yeah. 2020 and just what we were anticipating and the record-breaking cuts that we thought we were going to have to make in K-12 education. So obviously things materialized in a very different fashion and continue to do so. As you mentioned, this is on top of really record-breaking revenues last year. So all positive news now, because it's our job, you know, at the, at the give the other side of this. Yeah. I think the one challenge that we're going to have uh, going into budget season as an organization, as an education field is that yes, while some of the composite numbers are good and strong and there's revenues out there, schools are facing a lot of challenges. Yeah. Schools are facing challenges in terms of attendance, in terms of enrollment, in terms of ADA, obviously things that we've talked about every week. So I think the challenge is going to be that, yes, while the state numbers are good, there's a lot of districts, a lot of LEAs around the state that are still struggling and that this is going to play out very differently. So how do we make that case about some of the challenges while the bigger picture is that, yes, this is a good, it's going to be a positive landscape in terms of what resources are available to us. I think that's one thing we're going to have to talk about as we enter into January. Hey, let me make mention of this. Uh, you know, our, our viewers, we love our viewers. Um, did I read this correctly? That Gail Olson, who's one of our longtime members here, is watching from Cabo San Lucas. So that gives me an indication, Edgar, that Gail is on vacation in some, in some manner. But that is our dedicated viewership right there while she's on vacation. She's watching us. <laughs> yeah, I always appreciate that. Another shout out. I think I saw Gianna Miller uh, was, uh, I think, made an appearance, if I'm not mistaken, or oh. our other executive producer who's on maternity leave. Right. And yet, you know, maybe she just needed a break from motherhood for, for a few minutes. <laughs> and uh, so glad to see her name pop up on the screen there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Folks, let's get to our topic. Um, over the last week or so, um, we've had some counties and the superintendents in those counties have, have gotten together, sent letters uh, to the governor's office, to the administration, asking for clarity on mask mandates, on vaccinations, on personal belief. Um, I We have uh, two guests and I want to make sure that I give the clarity um, on these before we bring them on. In Shasta County, the superintendents, among many things, um, talking about the personal belief exemption and talking about some of the impact of, uh, of potentially students leaving the district, which is something we've talked about here before. Um, in El Dorado County, um, obviously acknowledging the vaccines, um, the mask mandates, but asking for clarification on the mask mandate. So that's where we're going to go ahead and focus our discussion right now, because there are communities out there um, that are trying to get some more clarity and maybe hit some touch points. So let's bring in our guests. Judy Flores is the superintendent from Shasta County Office of Education, and Ed Monsalo is the superintendent from the El Dorado County Office of Education. Judy and Ed, it is an honor to have you both on the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Judy, let me start with you. Give us a pulse on the discussions in your community related to vaccinations, 
what led you and district leaders to get to the point where you sent that letter? All right, well, thank you. Uh, as we think about Shasta County, we have a very different experience than much of the state. Our schools were opened in August of last school year and were able to stay open all year long with some quarantines necessary, but nothing like we've experienced this year with the Delta variant. When we think about our data here in Shasta County uh, from our public health office related to vaccines, uh, we are at a much lower level than looking at the state as a whole. For example, for our 12 to 17 year olds statewide, there's over 60% fully vaccinated. We're at 27%. Uh, for five to 11 year olds, nine, little over 9% are partially vaccinated statewide. We're at 2.7%. Uh, and even in our adult com community, it's significantly lower than the state as a whole. Uh, and when we look at our uh, COVID cases per 100,000, the state rates about 93 cases per 100,000. We're well over double that at just under 200 cases per 100,000. And that's actually a huge drop from where we've been the, in the uh, previous eight weeks or so. So what we've seen in Shasta County is in our board meetings across the school districts and at the county office uh, from July onward, uh, significant pressure coming through public comment, through protests, through emails where we see demands being made of boards to take action to not follow the mandates. Uh, first, it was about masking. Now they're, they're primarily focused on the vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. So when we got to October 18th, we had countywide 45% of our students not in school across charter schools and school districts due to the walkout related to the vaccine mandate. Mm -hmm. Uh, State Superintendent Tony Thurman and Tim Taylor from Small School District Association reached out to us and asked for our numbers and asked some additional questions. And so I gathered uh, the responses through a quick survey of our districts and charter schools uh, in order to have that number of 45% of students not in school. And then some follow-up questions were asked. And from those follow-up questions, I began to gather a list of questions that our district superintendents were saying, our boards really need to have answers to these questions. We do as well, but our boards, in order to make some educated decisions as we think toward next year. So we began to develop that list of questions uh, and I've shared those with CSESA staff who are helping to get answers from CDE, from Dr. Sood, from Brooks Allen in the governor's office and Linda Darlene Hammond, uh, because those are not just Shasta County questions, right? Those are questions that I think all of us have in terms of what is it gonna take for us to be in a position to really plan effectively as we think toward next year. One of our school boards in October actually took action to not follow the mandate and the challenge with that was they didn't really understand the consequences to the decision that they were making. Mm. And so that board president then began reaching out to other school boards, asking them to align with the stance so that they were not standing alone. Uh, I brought our school district uh, superintendents together at the end of October. Uh, we spent about an hour and a half as part of one of our uh, regular meetings just talking about the challenges that each district was facing. And what I heard were very common themes. 
and so at that meeting, I shared a draft of not only these questions I had gathered, but also a draft of this letter that went to the governor and leaders in the, uh, the uh, Senate and Assembly. And I asked if they were interested in signing the letter. Most were. Uh, several superintendents provided language to add to the letter, including quotes from families that were included. That uh, We also helped with the frame in terms of <clears throat> the percent of students that would not be back, uh, which ranges from 25 to 70% of families saying their kids would not be back next year if a personal exemption was not allowed. And so a final draft was then sent out uh, and we got we ended up with 21 of 25 of our school districts uh, who are represented on that letter in addition in addition to me. So that's a little bit of background and context. A pivoting and, and thank you both for joining us. Uh, Ed, uh, thanks for giving us some time. I don't play favorites. I don't play. Let, let, let me just say that right <laughs> off the bat. But Ed Mansala, you know, uh, one of my favorite members here to 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 engage with. So just don't tell anybody else that. Ed, uh, kind of similar to what we asked Judy. Kind of, we know how difficult it's been around the state. I know El Dorado County, no exception. On top of COVID, been dealing with wildfires been dealing with now the emergence of some of the protests and whatnot that Judy's talking about. Give us a lay of the land in the similar vein and, you know, kind of how your county coalesced around this effort and this letter that you folks also put out to the state. Appreciate that. Thank you, Edgar and Naj. It's good to be with you. And of course, it's a privilege to be speaking with Judy always. So um, Judy, many of the elements that Judy just articulated so well, we share in El Dorado County, but let me be a little more specific within our context. So yes, our district superintendents, and there are 15 school districts in El Dorado County, um, in addition to myself, collectively sent a letter to the governor uh, on Tuesday, November 9th, just last week. Um, Edgar, you're doing a great job just reminding the context from a timeline what we've been experiencing. And what I want to highlight is how strong the collaboration has been amongst these superintendents for multiple years. I, th I think about uh, the spring of 2019, our superintendents retreat two times a year for a day in the fall, two days in the spring. Edgar, you've actually spoke to at one of our uh, retreats. And in spring 2019, pre-COVID, pre-wildfires in El Dorado County, we said that we wanted to um, relentlessly focus on instruction and learning no matter what challenges come our way, right? That, that, that was going to be our North Star. And we didn't anticipate COVID at that, at that time, but um, as Judy speaks to the conditions in Shasta, it's similar to what we experienced in El Dorado County. We were one of the first counties where we um, had students back in person and it, um, in the early period of COVID. And then most recently, and when I say most recently, I'm even referring to August uh, of 2000 of, of this year, we had to close over 20 schools as a result of the um, Caldor fire. And it was quite devastating and then as we started to roll back in and ex experience um, just the transition after building off COVID and the Caldor fire, you know, it was, again, just such an in intense sequence of events. The vaccine mandate 
um, created a, a pretty strong reaction throughout our county. And so what the superintendents decided to do over roughly a two-week period was take time to really look at um, developing a collective statement and where could we find consensus in what we are observing and seeing as key issues. So that is, in a sense, the, the backdrop to our um, the letter that we developed. And of course, I know we're going to go more specifics to the content of that letter, but just wanted to pr provide a little more context in addition to what Judy just shared. And um, just want to remind all of our viewers, uh, if you have questions or comments, go ahead and put those into our chat. Cody Walker, we just saw uh, you asking to see those letters. Uh, our staff behind the scenes will be putting links into the uh, chat. So that way you can go ahead and uh, take a look at what's come out of uh, El Dorado County and Shasta County. Judy, I want to ask you because I, there were a couple of points um, in your letter and you mentioned some data points specifically. You pointed out that as many as 80% of respondents in a district survey said they were hesitant to get their uh, their children vaccinated. What do you and district leaders there in the county propose as a solution and why? Well, we really believe that um, what parents are asking for is more time. They really want more time to understand any long-term implications related to children in the vaccines. We've had dentists and many other professionals who are longtime supporters of school districts coming before school boards and advocating for more time to do the research on both the short-term and long-term Im implications of the vaccine. What we're hearing is that parents really want choice to still have their students in classrooms for instruction through a personal exemption. Uh, and they want that exemption to remain, but they're fearful that it will be removed in the same way that personal exemptions were removed back in 2015. Uh, within our letter, we actually talk about, um, the, uh, you know, this is one of the key points. Uh, by allowing more time for exemptions to remain in place, our families will have extended opportunity to observe evidence of the vaccine's safety and make a thoughtful decision. Uh, what we are sensing is a high sense of urgency and fear in our county, and we believe there will be a reactive uh, response or reaction, and people will withdraw their children from school uh, if, that, if that option isn't there. Uh, and as you mentioned, it's anywhere between 25 and 70 percent of students, depending on the size uh, and which district, who are telling us right now that they will not enroll their children in our public schools next year if that uh, exemption is eliminated. So we're just concerned about the long-term implications for our community when students are removed from school through an affidavit and enrolled in whether that be a tutoring center or just learning at home. Uh, these actions could really create a significant learning loss uh, for students and uh, both in terms of opportunities and outcomes. Ed, to build off of what just Judy talked about from the El Dorado uh, County perspective, maybe summarize for us what what ultimately, aside from I know that you folks give some context in terms of the challenges that the county has been and the schools have been facing. At the end of the day, what, what is it that you're asking the state to do? Uh, maybe you describe that for us. So I think that there are there were um, ultimately four asks uh, as a was that culminated um, our letter, 
And so I'll just do a brief summary. One, we wanted to reinforce that the, the mandate um, lies with the state, right? So there's a significant amount of confusion in understanding um, where these decisions are being made, how are they being made, and in particular, how can these decisions be um, influenced, right? So we know a significant amount of individuals are just taking it right to their local superintendents and boards, but helping um, individuals understand uh, the, the process of in influencing these decisions. Two, we wanted, we were asking to identify benchmarks that would end uh, the universal mask mandates. So an example of that would be, I was in a, uh, happened to be a, a rotary meeting and there was a grandfather asking a public health official, um, you know, I have, and the question went like this, I have a five-year-old grandson who is in kindergarten wearing, wearing his mask with his classmates, just trying to understand when, you know, what type of conditions would need to exist for this eventually to end? And the response was, right now, we, we don't see an end in sight, right? And, and of course, this was just an open level discussion, but it's an example of um, building frustration when there isn't clarity in terms of what benchmarks could potentially look like. So we're asking for that. Third, um, we're continuing to look at um, asking for uh, flexibility in tailoring guidelines to our local communities. We are you know, 20 plus months in to um, this pandemic. And we know that uh, California is a very diverse state and the percentages of COVID from one community to another, to another county to another look very different. And then last, what Judy emphasized, we are asking that the exemptions in particular, personal, medical, and religious exemptions remain in place. And uh, the data point that I'll use is uh, one of our 15 school districts did uh, survey their parents and asked if the exemption um, was closed, meaning personal and religious, what, what percentage of, or um, how many of you would ultimately shift to independent study or an alternative program and the results was roughly 70%, right? Now, regardless if it truly reflects 70% or not, even, even if it's 25%, that would be a significant shape. And, and this is why at this point in time, we're just asking for that personal exemption to remain. I uh, just want to point out to our viewers, um, Cody had asked and then Sean asked as well about links to those letters. You can see those in the chat right now. We've posted the uh, El Dorado County letter as well as the one for Shasta County. So folks, take a look at those after the show. Take a look at those after the show. Uh, Judy, let me ask you about critics because every district is confronting the challenges of, of critics out there. Uh, sometimes those that scream the loudest are the ones that are, are getting the most attention. What's the message right now to critics who say, look, there are other vaccine requirements that are out there before students can enter school. Why not just add this to the list? What's the harm in adding this to the list? What would you say to critics out there? I would say this vaccine is new. Uh, and as I talk with our largest elementary school district superintendent, this is too much too soon for at least half of her families. Uh, they're wondering whether it will even be a necessity next year, a year from now. Uh, 
because what we've seen is that students don't tend to be as heavily impacted by COVID as adults. So our families are just asking for more time. There's just a, a lot of fear uh, in our community. And, and with the fact that this vaccine is new, they're just asking for more time. So um, we're not asking for a personal exemption indefinitely. We're just asking in our letter through, through the end of the 22-23 school year. Ed, similar question to you in terms of, you know, there, there's a lot of opinions, obviously, on these issues. And then even as we go around the state community by community, you know, some critics, I know this has been a, a big point of conversation, especially related to the masking, that as we're entering the winter, you know, we don't know what the conditions are going to be. And is this the right time to be having the conversation about ending the mask mandate? I will say that you folks don't necessarily ask to end it. You're asking for metrics, right? In terms of what is it going to take to get to get out of the mandate? But with that said, what do you say to folks who may say, yeah, this is not the right time to be talking about uh, ending the mass mandate? I think um, from a, a timing perspective, even though, the, you know, it's being acknowledged, um, we're, we want to be cautious, there may or may not be a surge coming. Um, we know that you know, we've always taken a position, even from March 2020 until now, uh, in-person instruction, safe in-person instruction is what's desired and needs to be protected. So if I was speaking to a critic, it would be acknowledging that under the current guidelines, if a student is wearing a face covering and um, is potentially exposed to an individual, we have the modified quarantines that allow students to remain in school, right? So that's, that's how I would address a critic in the in real time. But when we're dealing with um, clarity of benchmarks, that becomes an important piece while an individual is struggling with the current mandate. So they're trying to get clarity. They're trying to get a sense of where are we heading? When do we see this potentially ending? Let me ask one final question for both of you. Um, have you received a response yet uh, from the governor's office? And if you haven't, um, do you anticipate getting some type of response? Judy, let me have you uh, start. So I've received an initial response from Brooks Allen simply to say that he's received it uh, and looking forward to future conversations, but that's the extent of it so far. Ed, any response yet from the governor's office? I, um, similar to Judy, um, that the letter has been received. Uh, of course, at the, the time of submission, uh, had the opportunity to speak to governor, the governor's staff to, just to, to um, provide context and clarity to the um, letter that we submitted. And at least in that in initial dis, um, discussion, I would say it was uh, affirmed, right? Thank you for a, acknowledging um, what you are experiencing, what you are hearing from your community, what your concerns are. But uh, so beyond the formal receipt and initial discussion, that's what that has been the response. All right. Uh, Craig Gensler with that question. Judy Flores, uh, Superintendent, Shasta County Office of Education, Ed Manansala, Superintendent, El Dorado County Office of Education. Judy and Ed, it's been an honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Um, Edgar, we did get a couple of questions. I want to make sure that we um, get the answers before 
uh, we go off the air. Let me get to Laura's question. Um, oh, my apologies. Nicole's question. Uh, here we go. Uh, Nicole Newman asks, uh, is the governor going to fix the ADA issue for, grow for growth versus budgeted in 2020-2021 in this January budget? What are you hearing? Well, I, I will never give the state, I will never anticipate the state quote unquote fixing things, right? Because that's, that's, <laughs> that's always that's always on the, on the perception end. I will say this, that the ADA slash enrollment, so I think it's two different issues. One is that we're, what is the impact on declining enrollment and some of those trends that we were already experiencing? What can we do to soften the blow on that end? And then the, the more acute ADA issues that have really been caused by the pandemic quarantines, public health messaging that we have to keep our kids at home, kind of something that both in El Dorado and Shasta have uh, experienced, vaccine mandate, mandate protests that have also impacted our day-to-day our, our -day attendance. What, if anything, will the state do to kind of provide relief? I think there's unanimous consensus from the advocacy community that this is going to be a priority. Uh, I won't go as far as predicting whether the governor will outright try to address it in his January budget. I will say that there's going to be a lot of discussion on this. And I do think that there's going to be some action. And I'm somewhat optimistic in that that they recognize that there's some real issues here that they're going to have to provide some relief to schools. Uh, let me get to uh, Gary Reller's question. Gary asks, does the mandate for vaccines for children need to be approved by the legislature? Obviously, we've been talking about vaccines and masking. Um, is this something that needs to go before the legislature? Yeah, and I predict, I predict we're going to have some shows here talking about various legislative proposals. Here's what, yeah. what the latest is. We still anticipate that there will be at least one member, if not multiple members of the legislature that will introduce a bill to codify what we've been talking about. Right now, again, to reset what we said in previous weeks, the, there is no policy. The governor made an announcement of what he intends to do over with his authority under regulations. Uh, that, that, that is already existing authority. But because of that, that's why they have to have a personal belief exemption because if you utilize this health and safety code, it says there has to be a personal belief exemption. What the legislature will likely try to do is introduce legislation to codify it, so to put it in law, not just regulation, to put the code vaccine into law, and also to quote unquote, what they will say, close the loophole or make it consistent to other vaccines and not have a personal belief exemption. Now, the politics of that, of what that will look like, that remains yeah. to be seen. Now, yeah. another thing that I also anticipate, I actually think that there may be some discussions on the other end about codifying that, maybe this protection should be there and that, mm -hmm. that there should be a personal belief exemption. So all that to say, we're in for a wild January, <laughs> February, like, and, and that's saying a lot, you know, especially for all of our folks in schools. I mean, it's been a year like no other. I yeah. think on the policy end, as we get deep into some of these political conversations, there are going to be some tricky talks. I, I think there's going to be a lot to talk about after January when the legislature returns in Sacramento. Yeah, totally agree. Um, Angela Shell asks a question. I just want to point this out to uh, to all of our viewers. Angela asks, is there an option to propose a topic of discussion for the lunch break? Oh. Uh, she's been trying to research a topic and would like information from those close to the Capitol. The we answer is <laughs> yes. Yes, we, we are always it may, may, it'll make all of our lives easier as we go week to week about like, hey, what's the thing we need to come back to? So always suggestions are welcome. 
we, we ho hope we don't hurt feelings if we don't always get to all the suggestions, right. but uh, <laughs> we, we love ideas. You know what? I, I think I can say this. The low point of Edgar's week is always after the show when I have to go to him and say, hey, Edgar, what are we going to talk about next week? It's almost the head slap, the hand slapping the head moment every Nod week. doesn't let me enjoy the ending of the show for no more than 15 <laughs> seconds. He's already exactly. asking me about next week. So Hey, you got to be prepared. Uh, folks, we are not on the air next Wednesday uh, for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday. Hopefully you guys get the opportunity uh, to take a breath and uh, enjoy some time with friends and family. Uh, when we come back, we are working our way towards our final edition of the lunch break uh, for the year. Now you'll remember that Edgar and I wore some fairly outlandish uh, outfits for the last show before the new year. We are going to set up a way and we'll tell you about it when we come back from Thanksgiving break about how you can participate that uh, participate in that as well. Uh, have some fun before the end of the year. So Nod, uh, if, you let, if you give me 10 seconds to clarify an answer, I was listening yes. to this comment. Yes. Uh, so I gave a whole lengthy answer about something she didn't even ask about. <laughs> it happened. <laughs> uh, she was asking about growth for those districts on the other end, not declining enrollment for those who have grown. And because of the dynamics of how the system was built, will they address that and, and acknowledge that? I think that's also an issue that's very much on the radar and something that whether they address it or not in the January budget, I think there's going to be a lot of discussions about that as we move forward in the in the legislative conversations. Proof that we are constantly watching the comment section in the chat yeah. uh, on the show. Uh, thank you, folks, so much for being with us today uh, here on the Axel Legislative Lunch Break. Uh, off next Wednesday, but we are back the following Wednesday with another new edition of the show. Have a great rest of the day and great rest of the week, and we'll see you next time.